Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning or your phones, I invite you to, to turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Um, it's, uh, Daniel's an Old Testament book. It's uh, to the right of some of the bigger Old Testament books that you might find if you open up your Bible about halfway. If you get to some of the big ones like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, keep flipping to the right and you will find Daniel there. Um, if you are new or with us this morning, we are in the middle of a series, sermon series in the book of Daniel, a book designed and given to us by God to help us live faithfully in exile. Daniel was writing to those in exile, and he was writing to show them how to thrive as they lived in exile, and God has given us this book to us today that as we fellow Christians live in the 21st century in exile, that we might like, that we might like them live Faithfully. So as Mindy this morning reads a large chunk of Daniel chapter 4 to us, I want you to listen for how God uses the most unique situation and the most unlikely person to teach us a very important lesson that we need to know as we struggle to live faithfully in exile. So please listen as Mindy, as Mindy reads. Good morning. So good to be here. I'm going to take a little bit of advantage of the fact that I have a microphone in my hand and I got permission. I'm not getting kicked out of Grace Church. Don't worry. I, I, I d words do not describe how overwhelmed I am by the care that I have received. Okay, I'm going to cry. Um, from this church, you guys, it, yeah, I mean, it's the body of Christ, but you guys have been Jesus' hands and feet to me for uh, six weeks uh, and continuing. Like, I haven't my family's like, I, I weigh nine pounds more than I did six, six weeks ago because I've been eating so much over the past six weeks. Amazing food. My house is being cleaned. My laundry is being done. My, I get anonymous notes in the mail. My, I get cards and texts and phone calls. And you guys, I can't, I can't, I can't even say a thank you's just not enough. So thank you. Today's my anniversary. And my husband's been beyond amazing in serving me more in the mornings i'll wake up to a smoothie by my by my bed i just i can't i can't say thank you enough so thank you those words are very heartfelt and thank you so much for your care and concern and prayers for me so thank you <laughs> i feel it <coughs> okay so on to the on to the good stuff <laughs> this is from daniel ford like josh said King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to show me the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of my dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom the spirit of the holy God dwells. <coughs> I told him the dream, saying, 
O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. <coughs> the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the heavens, in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. <coughs> let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of, by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me its interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree, the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, you have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. <coughs> and because the king saw a watcher a holy one come down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots bound with uh, roots of the earth bound with a band of iron and, and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. May the word of the Lord be blessed.
Thank you, Mindy. It is no small feat reading that. I appreciate that. Well, as you're standing there listening, I'm sure that you can, you can hardly believe the words that you are hearing. If it wasn't for the fact that every single other person in the crowd was looking around with the same confused looks on their faces, you would have surely felt that you needed to get your hearing checked. But after a few moments, you realize that what you thought you heard, you actually heard. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful leader in the most powerful nation in the world, has just issued a decree to all peoples and nations and languages, issuing a decree proclaiming that the God of the Israelites is the most high God. See that in verse 2? And if that wasn't enough, King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 3 goes on to say that it's the most high's kingdom, not the kingdom of Babylon, that is an everlasting kingdom. It is his dominion, the most high's dominion and authority that goes on from generation to generation, not that of Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps the only people in the crowd more surprised than you are the Israelites. Because after all, the, to the Israelites, this is the guy who came into your town bringing his army, conquering you, and capturing your people. King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who took your friends and perhaps a few of your family members in the first round of deportations, only for you to be taken captive just like them a few years later. You've always looked at Nebuchadnezzar. You have always heard his name with a, with a bit of contempt, considering him to be the enemy. And now here he is issuing this royal proclamation, proclaiming that your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the most high God. Here he is, your enemy, the one who defeated and captured you, proclaiming and declaring allegiance to your God. Shocked by what you are hearing, you have to know what in the world was it that brought this man, that brought about this change in Nebuchadnezzar's life? What was it that happened to him? Well, thankfully, we are not left wondering because Nebuchadnezzar, starting in verse 4, takes us very back to the beginning of this change, to the beginning of this transformation. He takes us back all those years before and tells us exactly what had happened and just like we saw in Daniel chapter 2, this time, it, it starts with the dream again. Verse 4 sets the stage for us. Nebuchadnezzar is in the prime of his life. He is at ease in his palace, and he is prospering. Personally, for Nebuchadnezzar, things are going great. He and the missus are getting along well, and the kids are doing all right. Professionally, Nebuchadnezzar is at the top of his game. His kingdom could not be more powerful. He's just secured another trade deal, and peace and prosperity are abounding all around. And then one night, Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream. Not a dream in times gone by, but a dream that absolutely terrifies him. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in a cold sweat and he immediately calls for all of the wise men in the end of the kingdom to come to his palace, tells them the dream, hoping that they will be able to give him the interpretation, tell him what it means. But just like we've seen before, these wise men aren't so wise. 
they're no help. And just when Nebuchadnezzar is about to give up hope of ever knowing what this dream means in verse 8, we see that Daniel, the chief prefect, the, the head of all of the wise men, comes walking into the king's palace. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't be happier that he's here because he knows that Daniel will be able to tell him the interpretation. He knows if anyone can do it, it's Daniel. It is Daniel, after all, is the one who is filled with the spirit of the holy gods. He's the one who is able to interpret his first dream in Daniel chapter 2. And so Daniel, having sat down, Nebuchadnezzar begins to open up and begins to tell him this dream. We see that starting in verse 10. As Daniel listens to Nebuchadnezzar telling him this dream, the dream starts off great. There's this image of this great tree in the center of the earth. It reached so high into the heavens that people all over the earth could see could see it. There, and not only was this tree great, but this tree was a, was a blessing to all. This tree was abundant in fruit. It fed everyone. The birds lived in this tree. The beast of the field rested in the shade that it provided. And I'm sure at this point, Daniel is wondering why he was awoken in the middle of the night and summoned to the king's palace to interpret this dream. Things are going great. But then something happens. Perhaps Daniel notices the change in Nebuchadnezzar's face. Perhaps even as Nebuchadnezzar himself struggles to get the next words out, Daniel can tell that something's about to change. Something big is about to happen. So Daniel sits up on the edge of his seat and he steadies himself for the words that he is about to hear. And in, starting in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar says that in this dream there was a watcher a holy one, and he, he comes down from heaven and he issues a proclamation. This large tree is going to be chopped down, chopped down to its stump. It's going to be bound, and all the glories of this tree are going to be stripped away and scattered. And suddenly, starting in verse 16, there's a change in the metaphor from a tree to a person as the angel, this watcher, says that he will be like a beast of the field with a mind to match. All of this will happen, we're told, for seven periods of time. And as Nebuchadnezzar finishes, he can see that Daniel is upset. Something is wrong. And so after giving Daniel some time to compose himself, he asked Daniel for the interpretation. And I can only imagine that Daniel, with this sad and sorrowful expression that we see or in verse 19, Daniel unpacks the meaning of this dream, making it clear that he wishes that everything he is about to say will not be for Nebuchadnezzar himself, but it will be for Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. He is sad by what he is about to unveil here. Because it's, but, and so he, he wishes that this dream would be for his enemies, but as Daniel begins unpacking it, it becomes very clear that this dream has one person in mind, and that person is King Nebuchadnezzar. As he begins in unpacking the dream, we see that the great and powerful tree visible from the ends of the earth, this tree that provided food and protection for all, was Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And in due time... Just like the tree, in verse 23, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be cut down. He's going to be brought down to size. 
But it wasn't just that, because as Daniel continues, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom is going to be taken away from him. He is going to be driven away from society, and he is going to become like a beast of the field, grazing the grass like an ox or a cow. But there's hope here in the interpretation Though, because as Daniel continues in verse 26, we see that the stump remains, meaning that the kingdom will eventually be returned to Nebuchadnezzar. There's a word of hope here, but we see that it will only come after a great humiliation. And in verse 27, as Daniel finishes his dream, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that things don't actually have to be this way. You see, Nebuchadnezzar can avoid this humiliation by repenting. By repenting of his sins and changing his ways, he sees that if he were to put his sins behind him, if he were to stop oppressing the poor and the weak, he would then be able to he would be able to avoid this judgment. God issues him a way out if he were to repent and to change his ways and to show mercy to those he was oppressing. And so we're left wondering at the end of verse 27, what is Nebuchadnezzar going to do? Well, we can't be exactly sure, but it does seem like Daniel's words sunk in at least a little bit for Nebuchadnezzar because this judgment that God promises him, it doesn't immediately come to pass. Twelve, Twelve months go by, but sin runs deep in our hearts and change is slow. And one night, about a year later, we see Nebuchadnezzar walking on the roof of his royal palace taking in the sights of his kingdom, and and we don't know exactly what he was looking at. Perhaps he was looking at one of his magnificent palaces that he had built or had restored. Perhaps he sees the hanging gardens so great and so majestic off in the distance that they're named one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're not sure what he's looking at, but as he's taking in the sights, he becomes puffed up with pride as he proclaims loud enough that anyone around him can hear him. And in verse 30, he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? This is exactly what Daniel was afraid of. This is why the dream had, had so upset Daniel. This is why the dream had dismayed him as he, he knew that this would come upon King Nebuchadnezzar because while the words were still coming out of his mouth, in verse 31, we see that a voice from heaven, a voice louder than his, speaks and in an instant, in an instant, everything that was promised in this dream comes to pass. Nebuchadnezzar is driven from among the people, and he becomes like a cow or an ox, and he lives like this for some time. We're not told exactly how long, however many periods of time, seven periods of time is, but one day we see that everything changes, because as we've now arrived at the climax of our story, because in verse 34, we see the most astonishing thing. We see the most amazing things happen. And here is where all of our questions from earlier begin to get answered. Because remember, the whole time as Nebuchadnezzar's been telling about his dream, we've been wondering how in the world does this guy, this Babylonian king, this guy who defeated and captured your people in the name of his god, Marduk, How is he now proclaiming allegiance to your God, the God of the Israelites? How is he calling him the most high 
king. And well, it's here in verse 34 that all of the pieces fall into place for us. Because we see that one day, while he's out in the field, he tells us here, narrating himself, he says that I lifted my eyes to heaven. Here in this moment, we see that he looks to God for help. In this moment here, Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging the sovereignty of God. He is acknowledging that God is in complete control of all that happens. He is, he is looking to heaven. He's lifting his eyes to heaven, and he knows that his future is in the most high God's hands, not his own. And here in this very moment, the very moment that he comes to this realization, we read, we were told that his reason returns to him, and he responds to God the only way that he knows how. He praises and worships God. See that in verse 34? He praises and extols the most high king, the king of heaven. And as promised in verse 36, we see that God returns this kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. Only this time you can see it is a changed, perhaps a converted Nebuchadnezzar. Because even though his kingdom is returned with even more glory than it was before, rather than being puffed up with pride, praising and proclaiming his own greatness, his final words in the book of Daniel, his final words recorded in scripture for us, are a testimony to the greatness and the glory of God in verse 37. Read what he says. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. With these words here, all the pieces have fallen into place. His royal decree in verses 1 through 3 now makes sense. This dream and its fulfillment here have shown us that Nebuchadnezzar's a man who has been humbled by God. And now for the first time in his life, he sees things clearly. He sees things as they truly are. And the chapter comes to an end. This here is our story this is what God has given to us here in Daniel chapter 4. And it's appropriate for us that as we look at this story, as we look at this amazing encounter, this amazing transformation in Nebuchadnezzar's life, that we ask, why is this story here? Why did God give us this story? What effect does God want this story in Daniel chapter 4 to have on our lives? Especially, as I mentioned earlier, as we seek to live faithfully in exile. While there is a lot that can be seen in these verses, I believe that God's desire for us in these verses is that we would see that he rules over human kingdoms and that he transforms human hearts. Using the words of this passage, I would say that God's intended effect for you and for me this morning, God's intended effect right here, right now, would be that we would see that the Most High rules over human kingdoms and he transforms human hearts. That's what God wants us to see, that he rules over human kingdoms and he transforms human hearts. Let's unpack each piece of that and spend some time applying it to our lives. First, this passage shows us that the Most High rules over human kingdoms. 
Did you catch how many times that phrase is repeated in our story? In one way or another, in Daniel chapter 4, this truth is repeated for us seven times. Just listen to a few of them. In verse 17, we read, To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. In verse 25, it says, Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Verse 26, Till you know that heaven rules. Verse 32, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Time and time again, we are told that everything that happens to Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter is meant to bring about the effect in his life that he would know that the Most High, that God rules over the kingdoms of men, that he rules over human kingdoms. In a world without bold italics or underlined, before you could, could text in all caps or before you could literally emphasize a message, I'm still amazed you can do that. If you wanted to, to make your point clear, you would use repetition. And given that this message here is repeated for us seven times, I think it's safe to say that as we look at this story, it is meant to be a blinking neon sign that captures our attention, showing us that the Most High rules over human kingdoms, that he is the one in control of everything. If you've been with us the last few weeks, it's, it's possible that you're thinking to yourself, we're hearing this point again. <laughs> this truth again, Josh, what's going on? And well, the answer to the question is yes, we have been hearing that truth the last couple weeks. And just preview, we're going to be hearing that truth for the next few weeks because it is God's grace to us that we be reminded of this truth time and time and time again because we forget time and time and time again. Like the dad in, in Cormac McCarthy's uh, just brilliant novel, The Road, just like the dad in that novel says to his son, he says, we remember what we wish we could forget, and we forget what we wish we could remember. Can, can you relate with that as you're sitting here this morning, perhaps looking back on your past week? Can, can, can you relate with that tendency to remember what you wish you could forget <laughs> and to forget what you wish you could remember? Well, God in his grace knows that we forget what we wish we could remember in the midst of the busyness of life, in the midst of the, the endless parade of distractions that we have. As we look at the restlessness of our hearts or the struggles of life that we face, all of these and more can cause us to forget the most fundamental of realities, and that is that God Most High is ruling and reigning over all of creation and every single one of our lives right now. So in the midst of our tendency to forget, he reminds us, as he shows us in the interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, he reminds us that he is in control, ruling over human kingdoms and human history. And so I want to ask this morning, where do you need to be reminded of this reality? What, what situation in life is, is or you, just, you just feel, I need to remember this, Josh. I need to hear this truth again. Perhaps for you, is it maybe a prolonged season of just suffering or sickness or struggling? For Israel at this point in time, they had been in exile for between 30 to 40 years at this point. 
that's a long time. And I can only imagine for them how easy it would have been in the midst of those 30 and 40 years just to resign themselves to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar himself is the one calling the shots. Nebuchadnezzar himself is the one in control of everything that's going on. I'm, I'm sure that they were very tempted to believe that, yeah, sure, God reigns on high. He's the king of heaven, but he can't do anything about what's going on in my life. He, this is, these things are just perhaps too small, or he, there's just no way that he can be involved in what's going on. But into that temptation of 30 or 40 years later, God gives them this story. God gives them this example of Nebuchadnezzar and his dream to show them that far from being in control, Nebuchadnezzar was not in control. Their captor was not in control, but God most high, he was the one in control. He was the one calling the shots. Do you need to be reminded of that this morning? What, what's going on in your life where you are just so tempted to forget just to think that, oh, God can't do anything about this. It is just, it has been too long or it is just perhaps maybe too small of a thing that God's not going to do anything about this. In this story, I think God wants to comfort your hearts. God wants to give you the assurance that in the midst of whatever you are facing right now, that he is in charge, that he is bringing about his good purposes, and that can just give us a different perspective. That can just fill us with peace in the midst of whatever we're going through, knowing that God is in control. Whatever challenges, whatever struggles we're facing right now, they're not calling the shots. But the Most High God who rules over human history, he's the one calling the shots. Be assured that God is in control. So the first thing God wants us to see, that he is ruling over human kingdoms. But there's a second reality that God wants us to see in this story, and that's that the Most High transforms human hearts. You see, the truth of God's sovereignty, the truth that God is in control over all things is a very personal reality. It touches down onto each and every one of our lives very personally, and we see that play out in Nebuchadnezzar's life in this story as his sovereignty, his ruling over all things brings about transformation in his heart. It brings about transformation in this life. We see this most clearly in his transformation from being a proud king to a humble king who rightly praises and honors God. We see Nebuchadnezzar's pride most clearly in verse 30. Remember, remember when he's walking on the roof, admiring his kingdom and his palace, he proclaims, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty, the eyes, the me's, and the my's here. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was all about himself. Here, Nebuchadnezzar is looking at his kingdom and in his pride, he takes full credit for the glory and the majesty of all that is going on. And as he does that, he fails to acknowledge that God's in control. And so he foolishly thinks that he's accomplished everything. And it's at this exact moment where he is at the height of his pride that everything goes downhill for him as he's driven out of his kingdom and he's made to live like an animal. And I think that Nebuchadnezzar struggling with something that we might call boanthropy today, someone who is just convinced in their mind that they are like a cow or an ox. I think that that is just a great picture of what pride can does, of what pri of pride's effect on our lives because it makes us less human. 
You see, you see pride is, is the height of insanity as we, as we fail to see ourselves as we truly are, and instead we have a, a skewed vision of reality with ourselves and our perceived accomplishments at the center. This is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. But thankfully, we know that his story here with him, his story, that his story doesn't end with him grazing the fields, but it ends with his kingdom restored greater than it was before. And all of this happens, this great transformation in Nebuchadnezzar's life, all of this happens because God transformed his heart as he humbled himself. You'll remember the climax of our passage here is in verse 34 when Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his eyes to heaven. This doesn't mean that he just lifts his head and looks up, but, but it's a figure of speech that shows that he has humbled himself. He has acknowledged that he has come to the end of him, his rope. He has come to the end of himself, and he acknowledges what has always been true, and that is that God, the Most High, rules over human kingdoms, that he is the one who is in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar, in looking up, acknowledges that he is not in control. And it's at this point that his heart is transformed and he comes to know God in what I would say in a saving way. This is what our God can do. Our God can transform human hearts, causing even the most proud king to humble himself to acknowledge that he is not in control, but that God is. I think that's the second thing God wants us to see here, that he is able to transform human hearts. And with Nebuchadnezzar in particular, I think there's just a helpful message that we need to take away, and that is this, this reality of pride that we just all struggle with. Because I think as Nebuchadnezzar, as, Nebuchadnezzar, as C.S. Lewis has rightfully pointed out, he says that as long as we are proud, we cannot know God. I think this element of pride here is exactly where God transforming our hearts takes effect. It's when we, when we get rid of our pride as we humble ourselves that we are able to come to know God. And this transformation here that happened in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, in Nebuchadnezzar's life, is nothing less than what must occur in each of our hearts if we are to come to know God, because as long as we, because um, as long as we are living in pride, as long as we are living with proud hearts, we are unable to know God, because the truth is we think that we are God. Our proud hearts tell us that we are in complete control of our lives, that we are autonomous, that we can choose whatever we choose to do, and because of this, as we look at our lives, as we see any good things that are in our lives, we look at them, and just like Nebuchadnezzar, we declare that they are the result of our greatness. We say that they are all signs of how great we are. But when we do this, we become just like Nebuchadnezzar. We become less than human as we worship ourselves, not the Most High God who's in control of all of human history, the one, who is give, the one who's given us and allowed us to receive all that we have. So this morning, if you're, if you're here and you, and you don't know Christ, if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I think that this passage here has, a, has an invitation for all of us to turn 
to God, to turn from our pride, to turn from thinking that we are in control of our lives, and to turn and to see that it is God, the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, the one who created and rules over all things, that he is the one who is in control. And the encouraging thing this morning is that if you are here and you don't know Christ, that as we look at the example of King Nebuchadnezzar, as we look at the New Testament and we see Jesus, we know that we are able to, that you are able to humble yourself because Jesus humbled himself for you. You see, that's the good news in this passage. The truth of the transformation that takes place in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart is possible because of what Jesus would go on to do six centuries later when, when he does, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, as he humbles himself for you and for me. Jesus, in Philippians 2, verse 7, we are told that Jesus humbled himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, that's speaking about the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, when Jesus came in human form, he emptied himself, and what did he do when he became human? Paul continues in verse 8, where he tells us that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the good news here that we see in Nebuchadnezzar's story is that because Jesus experienced the most humiliating thing in the world, death by crucifixion, he did this not just to leave us an example, but Jesus did this to pay the penalty for your pride and for mine. He did this to pay the penalty for all of our rebellions against him so that we might come to know him. He humbled himself so that he might transform our hearts, so that like Nebuchadnezzar, we might lift our eyes up to heaven, we might lift our eyes to the cross, you might say, to see Jesus, and that we might do exactly what we see Nebuchadnezzar do, and that is worship, to praise and exalt and honor him. This morning, if you would consider yourself not a Christian, I would just encourage you to look at this passage, to see this as an invitation from God Most High, the one who rules over human history, to see this as an invitation for you to lift your eyes to heaven, to take your eyes off of yourself, to get rid of the foolishness of thinking that you are in control of your life, and to humble yourself before this king who rules everything, that you might experience the life and the freedom that he is offering. Perhaps even this morning, you were just at a personal crisis moment. You are here this morning in the midst of a personal crisis similar to what Nebuchadnezzar found himself in. And if that is you, I would just encourage you to see this morning as an invitation from God to see and to look to him, to turn to him now, to see Jesus, to see that he is in control and to worship him and experience the rest that he can provide. I think the takeaway for all of us here who have trusted in Jesus is much the same. This passage here is an invitation for all of us. It's calling all of us once again to humble ourselves and to worship and to worship God. Here in Nebuchadnezzar's answer or Nebuchadnezzar's response to God's humbling, we see that the antidote to pride in each of our lives is worship and gratefulness. Because the truth is, just like Nebuchadnezzar, you and I today can so easily look at the good things in our lives. We can look at our families. We can look at our retirement accounts. We can look at our career, our academic, or, ath or our athletic accomplishments. 
We can look at our social media presence or our status, wherever we are. We can look at all of those things. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, we can puff up our chest and we can say, is this not my great family, my great career, my great house, my great church, my great social media presence that I have built by my mighty power for the glory of myself. We are all so easily tempted to do that. I know in my own heart how easily tempted I am towards pride in these ways to look at the good things into my life and to say, I have accomplished those things. But as we look to the example of Jesus, as we look to Daniel chapter four, we can see that this passage here is inviting us to lift our eyes to lift our eyes away from the things in our lives and to give credit, to give worship and praise to God, to make much of him. So this morning, I just want to ask you, where do you need to humble yourself? Where are you aware of your need perhaps to repent of pride, this temptation to make much of yourself and instead to turn to God and to worship him? That, that, that's what God wants the truth of his sovereignty to do for each and every one of us. God, God wants the truth of the fact that he is ruling over all of human history to humble our hearts that we might respond in praise and worship this morning. So before we take communion here in just a few moments, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I just want to end this service by giving all of us a few moments in our hearts just to reflect on where we need to be reminded this morning, where we need to hear God's invitation to humble ourselves and to worship him. Or maybe, it's for, or maybe this morning you're just aware of a struggle, you're aware of a difficulty, a personal crisis in your life. And this morning I just want to encourage you to spend some time reflecting on the fact that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is ruling and reigning over all things, and rest. Rest in the fact knowing that your good king, the one who loves you and died for you, is ruling over all right now. So I just want to invite Rick to come down. The servers can get ready, and as they do that, take a few moments in the quiet of your heart to see where the Spirit might be speaking to you this morning. Most high God, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you who rule human history, that you humbled yourself for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would meet us this morning, that these truths would minister to our hearts, that we might humble ourselves and worship you as we lift our eyes as we see Christ crucified and raised for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to end our service this morning.